this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath the pandemic hasn't been kind to school children two years of lockdown has meant a huge setback in terms of learning outcomes while children from privileged backgrounds could do online classes poorer children could not it has been reported that post pandemic children from marginalized communities have even forgotten what they had learned 2 years earlier now a new research study titled where are the kids the curious case of government schools in bihar documents the state of schooling and school children in north bihar this report was conducted by jan jagriti shakti sangathan and is based on a survey of 81 schools in two districts and it offers revealing glimpses into the state of education in rural india to tell us more about the report's findings we have with us the economist jean dries and paran amitava who is one of the co-authors of the report jean and paran thank you so much for joining us really appreciate your time thank you it's pleasure yeah to start with uh, i was just wondering uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, why this survey the motivation for it and how uh, you went about selecting the schools and what were your expectations and so on john you want to start off and then maybe paran can also chip in with her observation yeah so sampath uh, this uh, report is basically a continuation of earlier efforts to draw attention to the silent crisis that surrounds the schooling system today in states like bihar and jharkhand and for that matter many other states as well uh, this effort began during the covid crisis when we were shocked to find in jharkhand that not only were the schools closed for almost 2 years at a stretch which is the longest school lockout in the in the, in the world Uh, but also that during that entire period the children who were not able to study online which means the majority of underprivileged children had basically been abandoned by the schooling system and virtually nothing was done to help them continue studying in that period we are seeing the consequences of that now for example in the fact that in bihar uh, according to recent data from the annual survey of education reports Uh, 70% of children in grade 3 are unable to read a single word and that's consistent with what we had found in Jharkhand at that time that uh, there was a kind of revival of mass illiteracy among children because of this prolonged lockout so in the post covid period we wanted to see what was being done to help these children and the short answer is very little and we also found that the crisis is actually a reflection both of the covid setback but also of chronic deficiencies of the schooling system in these states so the surveys were basically to try to understand these chronic deficiencies also and uh, to break the silence that is surrounding surrounding this catastrophe because bihar and jharkhand are going to pay a very price for it in the future right this mass illiteracy uh, among school children is a quite pretty disturbing uh, phenomenon and uh, i mean covid crisis might be over but the 
but the crisis induced by the covid years in rural education continues aparan you want to add something to what jan had to say on this survey no i think we can go ahead i think paran can perhaps explain the method of the survey since she is more familiar with it so um in this report we surveyed about uh, 81 schools and we covered these 81 schools were spread across two different districts in bihar and this was a random sample but we tried to focus on those schools where, where the majority of students enrolled were coming from marginalized communities so they were scst obc or muslim students over there so the findings are focusing on the fact that these are schools where which are present in areas where students not from very well to do communities are going and studying okay so uh, so the schools focused but the survey focused on schools where there is a, a good representation of marginalized communities which is where of course as we know already uh, the impact of the neglect and uh, of the covid years was uh, felt the most of course that we knew from anecdotal evidence but this is a survey which documents this phenomenon and from this report uh, uh, paran i was reading it and one the general picture one gets is of uh, you know like what jean said abandonment uh, with a couple of ex- exceptions in terms of schools doing much better so what would you describe as say the five top or five critical takeaways or findings uh, from this report which we now have with us I think uh, the first thing that I found most surprising was the really less number of students who were actually present on camp on on the school campus when we went to survey them. So on the day of the survey, we barely found only twenty percent students actually in class. The students exist on the in, in the enrollment, but they're just not in their classroom. They're not on school. So that was a big surprise. Twenty percent is really less. We found in. extremely inadequate infrastructure so facilities that are norms as per the rte are not present in schools but additionally you also have schools which do not have a building in itself they don't have a building schools which are running from bamboo huts so this was this was a big surprise for um, for, for me as well because we did have did not find such uh, such inadequate infrastructure even in jharkhand and the last the final thing that i would like to add before i pass it over to jean would be there was a rampant i felt that students have actually moved out of school of these government schools and are studying in low fees private schools so those are the three things that i would like to say here right so you have flagged basically a uh, very poor attendance and uh, the lack of the basic minimum infrastructure that is mandated by the right to education act and of course this migration to private schooling from government schools so we'll come back to these points individually later on uh, in this podcast but jean before we do that what what were your thoughts the top 5 takeaways from this report i'm not sure about 5 i thought i'll just add a couple of points to what paran has said to make it 5 but i'll try to set it beyond 5 if you like uh so so the for for the fourth thing i would say i mean that you already mentioned it in a way is these rampant violations of the right to education act in almost every school in fact i would say every school among those that we survey uh, there are a lot of important norms in the right to education act relating to facilities relating to people teacher ratios relating to teaching hours functioning of school management committees and so on and so forth 
and all the schools in the sample were very different in norms. Now, they are demanding norms to some extent for a state like Bihar, but you know, it's 14 years since the act has been has come to force. So I think there has been enough time to meet these norms. But that is also another takeaway. Uh, fifth, fifth, I would say, it's a very discriminatory system where the most vulnerable communities who have been marginalized from the education system for centuries and who need the best education facilities today are getting the worst and the worst by a long margin. That's, you know, think about Musahar, the Rabidas, or these extremely marginal communities. They are the ones who are getting these uh, dilapidated schools that Paran mentioned, like a bamboo part that you can't access in the monsoon with just one teacher for more than 100 children. Uh, so uh, that is an extreme injustice. And as I said, the price of this is not going to be paid, not only by these communities themselves, but by the entire society. If I can add a sixth point, I would say the failure and inappropriateness of the DBT system, uh, the direct, so-called direct benefit transfer system, quite an ironic name actually, uh, for distribution of uh, textbooks and uniforms. I think that system is not working. It has already been withdrawn there recently for textbooks, and I think it should be withdrawn for uniforms as well. Right. I mean, those are very uh, solid uh, points, uh, Jean. I mean, uh, they stand out in the report as well. What you mentioned about uh, the impact of uh, direct benefit transfer system for textbooks and uniforms and the fact that it's a very discriminatory system where the privileged continue to sort of uh, sort of make headway in by using whatever means at their disposal, such as online classes and so on, whereas the marginalized continue to get the worst of uh, the neglect of this uh, entire sector uh, from the state, so to speak. So we'll come back to these uh, one by one. To start with, I was just wondering uh, what your thoughts on uh, on this aspect which Paran had flagged about this uh, attendance issue. She said just 20% uh, of the students who were on the rolls were what she could see, uh, what the various people who were doing this survey could see in general. And in many cases, the attendance was actually inflated as well, which is what the report says. So I was just wondering, why is the attendance so low, despite uh, I mean, from what we've been reading about the success of midday meals in getting schools to go getting kids to government schools? Jean, you want to take this first? Yeah. Uh, so just to clarify the findings first, uh, what we found is that among the children enrolled in these 81 sample schools, only about 40% were attending according to the school records, according to the school registers. But when we did a direct headcount ourselves, or rather the survey teams did a headcount, they found that barely 20% of the children were attending. Now, this is extraordinarily low. I mean, I've never seen such low attendance figures anywhere at any time in India, and it's really catastrophic. Now, why is it so low? The frank answer is we don't really know where these children, these 80% of missing children are, whether they are studying in private uh, coaching centers, whether they are working or just milling around, playing. Uh, in the report, we mentioned several possible reasons for low attendance. I'll, I'll just mention three because there are many others as well. But three big ones, I think. One, of course, is the low functionality of the schools and the lack of classroom activity, which must be discouraging many children from attending schools. 
Uh, the second factor is that many children attend private tuitions during school hours. So, for example, many children stay in the government school until the midday meal, and after that, they go to a private coaching center. Very recently, the uh, after the survey, the, the, the Bihar government uh, issued an order banning private tuitions during school hours. Hopefully, that will help, but I think it certainly was a factor at that time. But I don't think it can be the main factor by any means. I suspect that many of these children are simply uh, playing or roaming around. We know from National Sample Survey data that even in Bihar, only a minority of children involved in government schools attend private tuition. So that cannot be the main, let alone the entire explanation. Third factor, I think very important, is the effect of COVID. I mean, if the children, the schools are closed for two years at a stretch, then it stands to reason that many children will lose the habit of going to school. So I think that also has had an impact. And fourthly, I would say that it seems to me that Bihar is a state where uh, regular school attendance is yet to become a widely shared social norm. So you know, in, in many states now in India, uh, this idea, I think, has been inter internalized by most parents that the child goes to school. That's what the child normally does. But in Bihar, I have a feeling that that norm is still missing and that school going to school is still considered by too many parents as something that, you know, you do if you can, if you feel like, and if you don't, it's all right. So I think there's a lot of work to do on that front as well. Right. Uh, really solid points there. Of course, the COVID effect could be one factor, as you said, and the low functionality of the school itself is another. And then the private school uh, tuitions uh, happening at the same time, that's also a factor. But I was just wondering, uh, uh, Paran, if you wanted to sort of expand on one thing which struck me on this attendance issue, uh, which is that uh, you, I think the report mentioned somewhere that because the price of eggs are, uh, are sort of taken to be lower than what they actually are, so they need to inflate uh, the attendance or whatever to be able to buy those many eggs for the students who come. Is that a factor as well in, in for the discrepancy between the number of children who are on the rolls, who are shown as on the rolls on a given day and the actual headcount being much lower? See, that is a factor that teachers often flag to you if you go and have a conversation with them. It is true that the, the Bihar, Bihar government has priced the egg lower than what it what it is available in the market, but they're only providing one egg a, a week. So even if they are not having enough egg fund to provide eggs for all the students present in the school, it still can't be as inflated as they are showing on the registers. That could that does not explain it completely. Right. Right. I was also wondering, so uh, so what does it actually uh, seem like? Are government schools in Bihar basically turning into centers for midday meals that also happen to conduct exams while the actual learning, so to speak, quote-unquote learning, uh, has sort of migrated to private tuition centers? Is that largely the trend we are seeing uh, in North Bihar at least? So um, I'd like to answer this by asking you a question. So... If when you talk about learning, is it is that what is happening at these private tuition centers? From what I have noticed in the few schools that I have visited in Bihar, these tuition centers are actually just one-hour classes 
in the evenings that the that a you know a slightly educated person from the village sits down with some of the students going to that same school sometimes in the campus of that school in the evening and he takes a class now i'm not sure how much learning is actually happening in these classes from what it looks like as an observer it seems that this is more of a more of a class where they are mugging things up and this mugging up is happening for the examinations that they have to write in their schools so maybe these tuition centers and these and these public schools together are completing that process where one is an examination center and the other one is a center where you prepare prepare for that examination i'm not sure if the learning is happening in these tuition centers at all because you know these are not tuition centers like we have in these urban spaces where you know they're taking a lavish fees people are paying barely 200 rupees a month or 50 rupees a month for daily one hour classes so i'm not sure about the learning aspect right okay learning i mean as i said it's a quote and quote which it has to be considered within quotes because it's a very narrow definition uh, that that basically channels certain information for reproducing in the exam as you said now uh, i wanted to just come come back to this uh, point john you had made earlier about dbt direct benefits transfer and aadhar uh, which are very much in play even now uh, and how they are affecting access to learning in this kind of a setting which already is a dismal picture of neglect and so on right uh, so just to explain what this dbt system means what it means is that instead of textbooks and uniforms being distributed directly to children money is being sent to their bank accounts or to joint accounts of the children and their parents so that they can buy ch- uh, textbooks and uniforms on their own now the first point is that supreme court orders have been made have made it very clear that you cannot demand other from children so this system violates the supreme court orders which in fact have been violated across the country but let's even if we leave that aside and we look at the system on its own merit this is a very inappropriate system that imposes a very cruel choice on the parents you know whether they are going to use the cash to actually buy these textbooks and uniforms or do something else with the cash and the consequence is not difficult to guess the consequence is that some children have textbooks and uniforms and some don't now this is very unfair it's particularly counterproductive for uniforms because the, the entire purpose of uniforms is to make sure that all the children look alike in the school and that at least an appearance of equality is maintained now if only some children have uniforms and others not that defeats the purpose it's also now inappropriate of course for textbooks because textbooks are, are absolutely essential for learning they are really non non negotiable rights of these, these children under the right to education act so it's essential that they all have them and that is better done by direct distribution in fact almost all the teachers that we interviewed on this opposed the dbt system that we were demanding a return to direct distribution which has already happened for textbooks but should also happen now i think for uniforms and this system should really not be extended to other states in fact it is this being extended at least for uniforms to some other states i think it's quite a dangerous trend and a very unnecessary way of doing things that we have enough experience to know that it's possible to do direct solution effectively and that it's a better way of doing it. 
Right. I mean, giving cash in lieu of textbooks uh, never made sense. <laughs> oh, anyway, hopefully that is gone and hopefully uh, the same kind of uh, sense will prevail with regard to uniforms as well. Now, I was just wondering earlier, we discussed about how so many of these schools function without uh, the basic infrastructure. You know, they don't have, uh, many of them don't even have a building, uh, let, let alone uh, libraries and toilets. And some of them don't have toilets. They don't have uh, a water supply. So wh why is this uh, the way things are? I mean, is it uh, because of a lack of funds or is it a non-utilization of education budgets or don't uh, the beneficiaries, so to speak, of the RTE Act in this uh, setting, they, don't they demand their entitlements uh, from the state? Like what exactly is the reason? Is it funding or is it something else? Paran, you want to sort of answer this? Um, I... I can begin, but I would definitely want John to say speak on this as well. Uh, so, as per what I've understood, there definitely seem there definitely seems to be a decelerating trend in how much Bihar spends on its schools. There are low levels of per child spending compared to other states in the country where education is public education is much more efficient and is functioning well. There is massive financing gaps and there has been a declining priority on education in recent years, which characterizes the landscape of school education financing in Bihar. But apart from this aspect, one another thing that I would like to mention is the last part of your question that there is a lack of demand for their entitlements on the potential beneficiaries also. Uh, while I think the state is not putting in few, enough funds to actually uh, make schools in Bihar RTE norms, like to, to make schools in Bihar that all the RTE norms apply to them. But it's also true that uh, the beneficiaries, the students, their parents, the people in the villages who are actually sending their children to these schools do not know what the Right to Education Act stands for and what all it promises to them in that act. So if they don't know, then how will they ensure from their end that, that their local school actually gives them all of that? That uh, bridge is broken. Right. Uh, Jean, you want to add to this as Param had uh, hinted because, uh, yeah, yeah, please go ahead. Well, one thing I will say about this issue of demand, it's certainly true that there is no articulated demand and certainly no articulated collective demand as things stand. But there is, of course, a huge aspiration for education, for quality education, because that we only hope that poor parents have, that their children would have a better life than they have had themselves. So I think there is a big demand for education, for quality education, but it's kind of hidden. And our experience recently in Jharkhand is that even though people don't come out on their own, when you try to mobilize them and inform them, uh, and enable them to voice their demand, then they come out in large numbers. So there's a large uh, untapped demand, I think, for untapped voice for education. On the facilities, let me clarify that over time, all said and done, the school facilities have improved quite substantially. I mean, things were much worse in the past 30 years ago at the time of the public report on education. And... Uh, Really, really, over time, the facilities do improve, and I think they will continue to improve. So, for me, that is not the main challenge. You know, I think there are huge efficiencies, waste of money, and so on. 
But that, these are things that can be improved relatively easily. I'm more worried about the overtendance, lack of teachers, poor work culture, lack of classroom activity. I think these, for me, are more difficult issues. I may just add one small anecdotal story. I recently was talking to a child in Bihar and I, was, I asked him that, you know, uh, I was talking to a bunch of students and asked them that why don't you have to pay the fees in in a government school? Like, why aren't you paying fees over there? And one of the responses I got was because there's no education that is happening over there. So it it was really like, it was really upsetting because this is how less information people actually have about their own rights, especially children. Right. I mean, the, this uh, the lack of awareness about the Right to Education Act and the norms and entitlements it gives. I think uh, that's an issue as well. Uh, apart from all the others that the report flags, uh, we're running out of time here. So one last question, maybe both of you can chip in. So I mean, uh, Jean, you spoke about. Uh, non-articulated demand, but then there is still an aspiration for education. But even where there is an articulated demand of articulation of these aspirations, there are so few schools uh, which are able to deliver. And I was just wondering, so given that there are these few schools which are really good schools in North Bihar, that too, which is like one of the most uh, underdeveloped uh, parts of the state, why can't that be replicated on a wider scale in North Bihar and elsewhere? Like, what is stopping? How how come these good schools are able to flourish there and not more of them are around? Paran, you want to go first and maybe Jean can come later. So, the Right to Education Act has coded accountability into the system. And if that act can be made a little more... Like if people can know more about it, especially the local, the the villagers who are sending their students to these schools, then I think that school can automatically start functioning well. Because in certain of certain schools, in certain case studies, we have noticed that if there are teachers who really enjoy teaching and who are who are responsible towards their student, then they and if there is a manageable PTR in that school, especially with regards to Bihar, then they have managed to actually have a learning environment in that school. So it is possible in within the within the public education system in Bihar for good schools to exist. Right. I mean, so you're saying the teachers' uh, interest and motivation is a key factor here. And Jean, you want to add to that? Well, I'll just say, first of all, I think the significance of the fact that even in that deprived area of North Bihar, there were some schools that were functioning very well. Uh, that is very important because it shows that even in the present system, uh, it's possible for the schools to work. Now, of course, many of them are not working very well at all. But still, my feeling is that a large number of teachers would prefer to work in a functional system than in the dilapidated system in which they are working today. And they would be, I think, willing to participate in a serious collective effort to improve the system. But that effort is not being made. The entire schooling system in Bihar is like a ship without rudder. There's no seriousness across the board, you know, from top to bottom. And so, therefore, the tendency of the children, the teacher, then is to, you know, just do the minimum. Uh, and so I, I think that what is needed is a major political initiative to turn the system around. Unfortunately, after the release of the report in Patna, when we went to the media education minister, 
we had a taste of why that kind of initiative is not happening, because the minister himself was quite out of touch, I think, with the ground realities and especially with the predicament of poor households. And just to illustrate, when we tried to argue for eggs being provided three times a week in the schools instead of just one time, once a week, he said that if it was up to him, there would be no school meal at all. So, you know, when the attitude is like that from the top, then, of course, it's very difficult to turn the system around. Uh, I think we have quite a bit of experience now in the field of social policy uh, to know that, that when there are serious efforts backed with strong political commitments to improve these public facilities and services, it does happen. And therefore, I think it can happen in the schooling system as well, even in Bihar, which, by the way, is in, you know is kind of off the chart in India as far as the schooling system is concerned, it's really the worst case. But I think even there, things can improve very radically. Right. Uh, very important uh, points there, John. I was just wondering, you, you you spoke of the importance of uh, political will, political commitment, uh, but then you also mentioned that in your experience, uh, the people who can, uh, who can sort of actually make a difference with their political will are out of touch uh, with ground reality. So, so how does this? Uh, how do we make headway in this situation? Do you think is it because is it from can political commitment happen without a political demand coming from the ground up? Because everything comes down to electoral calculus. If education uh, even now is not an electoral issue, do you see any kind of political commitment coming through uh, where the priorities for political parties and political agents? Seem to be very different. I, mean, I know it's a difficult question, uh, probably beyond the scope of this uh, podcast, but I just wanted a quick uh, sort of thought from you on this before we wrap up. Well, Sampat, I think it's a big challenge because I think that in India, there is a strong notion uh, going back centuries of education not being important for certain social groups. And it's very difficult, I think, to overcome that notion and to create a very strong collective commitment to universal quality education. Uh, so, yes, you're right, the pressure has to come not just from the ground, it has to come from all sides, from political parties, from parents, from civil society, the government itself take initiatives. And it's difficult, but some states in India have seen that kind of progress. I mean, in states that come in Nadu, uh, schooling issues have been largely political issues for a long time. In Delhi also, we have seen quite a change in political commitment to education. But the results are like we can discuss, but at least there was an effort, and an effort that was rewarded to make it a big political issue. But I think that's what needs to happen on a much bigger scale, and that's what we can contribute to in our own honest way. Right. I mean, that's a very uh, solid point there. Uh, I mean, schooling issue is also, uh, at the end of the day, a livelihood issue. And I think that's probably one channel through which it can become a lively political issue as well. And we have seen that happening to some extent in Delhi, uh, where schooling and good schools have been used for uh, political uh, point making, political messaging. Hopefully, we will see some more of that in other states and in Bihar as well. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much, Paran, for taking time out for this uh, podcast, for discussing this very important report. Thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you both. Thank you. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon 
with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.